Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am speaking with award-winning independent journalists, Ollie Winston and Darwin Bond Graham, who have co-authored the book, The Writers Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. If you've been listening to the show, you know this was one of my most anticipated books of 2023 because I am an Oakland native and any book about my city is important to me. The book examines the Oakland Police Department, which has been the subject of the United States' longest-running criminal reform program. Having followed the department and its stories for 13 years, Ali and Darwin have a lot to share with us about modern-day policing, state violence, and they try to talk about if it's even possible to truly reform a police department. Our January book club pick is Mariah Carey's autobiography, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, written with Michaela Angela Davis. We will discuss the book on January 25th with our guest, Chelsea Devontes. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. It's a new year. It's a new you. And if your resolution was to put a little money behind your favorite independent creators, I have just the thing for you. It's The Stacks Pack which is the Stacks Patreon community. For as little as $5 a month, you earn perks like our virtual book club, access to our active Discord community, and bonus episodes. Plus, right now till the end of January, you get our fantastic reading tracker. So if one of your other resolutions was to read more, this tracker is just the thing for you. More than that, you get to know that your money is going to support the work of the Stacks, which is a Black woman-run independent podcast all about books. It's super easy to join. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks and be a part of the Stacks Pack. I'd like to say a huge thank you to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Paige Cahill, Deirdre Purcell, Aaron Hennessy, Laura Sabian, Paulette Arazzo, Gayla Matsuka, Kathleen Penner, and Bethany Berger. Thank you all so much. And thank you to every single member of the Stacks Pack. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Ollie Winston and Darwin Bond-Graham. All right, everybody. I am very, very excited about today's guests. If you know me, if you've been listening to the show, you've heard me talk about this book a whole bunch at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. It's called The Writers Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. And I'm joined by both of the authors, Darwin Bongram and Ali Winston. Welcome to The Stacks. Hey, thanks so much for having us. 
I'm so excited. Everyone know I'm not everyone, but you all know, and most of my audience knows, I'm from Oakland. I'm a big uh, anti-police person. So this book really speaks to all my biases and backgrounds. <laughs> but I would love for you, one of you to start just in about 30 seconds or so, tell everyone what this book is about. Sure. I mean, this book is kind of a compendium of our decade plus of reporting together. It is a history of the Oakland Police Department of Oakland as a city and the city's struggle with uh, the quandary of policing, police accountability, public safety, and the overall kind of underpinning question uh, in this book is whether or not American law enforcement can be reformed in its current state. I have questions about that. Uh, Fire away. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll come back to that. I want to ask you sort of really broadly, how did the idea of putting, because you're both reporters in the Bay Area, you both have been doing this work. How did it come to you to say like, we want to write this or there, this should be a book and we want to write it together and now's the time to do that? Yeah, <laughs> complicated answer, but basically, <laughs> yeah, basically boils down to, you know, yeah, we were both writing for uh, the all-weekly newspaper in Oakland for a long time, the East Bay Express. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we would write these stories that were like, you know, officers got drunk at a bar and wandered down the hill and committed a home invasion, you know, like and beat up the homeowners while they were blindingly drunk or officer ran a red light and like ran a motorcyclist over and then lied about it and blamed it on the motorcyclist. And even though, you know, video contradicts that and officers in the police department, you know, shot someone in the head with a beanbag and then, you know, like av avoided accountability. And we, we would write all these stories and they were kind of like, they felt like these one off, you know, like horrible things that happened. And we would have to shoehorn in this like brief, you know, explanation that, you know, in a paragraph or so that o Oakland is under federal court oversight because actually like these problems are, you know, systemic and um, deeply ingrained in the history of the department. And there's a reform effort un underway. And we, we, you know, over time, we just got frustrated and realized like the only way to like really properly ever do this. Yeah. Is to treat this as like a, a book length project. So we, we knew we had to do it someday. The way it really came about was um, at different points, we both had a lot of free time. Um, so a few years ago, I got laid off of my job at the time. Ali was uh, freelancing also. No, I was at the New York Times. <laughs> yeah, he was at the New York Times. We we linked up then and we're like, faded. let's do the book. Then I got a new job and then Ali left the Times. Um, but basically along the way, we just, you know, fortuitously found the time and the space to actually do the research, interview the people and and put it all together. Got a good lawyer. We're able to sue the city for dozens, like 30 odd open public record act requests that we had in for old police incidents. Uh, there was a really important California law, SB um, 1492. Uh, yeah, 1421. 1421. 1492 is a different year. <laughs> um, but 1421 was really important. It actually opened up older, substantiated cases of police misconduct, the internal affairs files to the public. Um, there's been a progressive rollback of some of the secrecy laws around uh, law enforcement records in California over the past five, six years or so. And it's really that our lawsuit, our lawyer, Sam Ferguson, really tore the city of Oakland a new one and actually set state precedent. No, no, he set state precedent for access of public records to these files. It was the first time that anybody had really tested the law out in the courts. And that enabled us to write about incidents, some of which we both covered 
extensively, but kind of, you know, looking at it through a straw mm. and really opened things up to us in a way that we didn't have access to beforehand. We also, because of this project and because of the way we shaped it, I'm going to get a little bit meta here. Uh, if you've ever read City of Courts, the Mike Davis History of Los Angeles, um, if your readers haven't, I highly recommend it. It's one of the best books about Southern California and urban history ever written, um, in, in the U.S. rather. And Mike Davis uses the history of the Los Angeles Police Department to explain mm -hmm. the shape of Los Angeles as a society and as a metropolis in 1990, right before the Rodney King riots. And he uses the jackbooted LAPD of... Um, First, uh, Bill Parker and then Daryl Gates to kind of lay out how that social order came about and how the police were really the kind of gatekeepers of that social order. And in many ways, throughout our, first of all, the book was kind of our temp, one of our templates for how to think about Oakland and how mm -hmm. to think about the police as a central institution for the, for the, the city and for the society as well. For control, not just control and ordering of society, but also um, controlling the disorder allegedly. And um, we really looked at that book as kind of a template for us. And we wanted to do a little bit of a Northern California version of City of Courts. And in many, many, many ways, Los Angeles and Oakland have a lot of parallels. It's not just in the mm. two police departments. OPD is like a little LAPD. That's how I think of it as an East Coaster. Well, I live in LA and I'm from <laughs> Oakland. So feel like the police are the same. And I lived in New York City. So I All feel right. like those three police departments have really... Done, they've done a lot to really make police look great in this country. Just a brief tangent, because you said you wrote for the New York Times. Did you do the police beat there? Like the I covered the beat? NYPD. I grew up in New York City, and I moved back to New York to cover the NYPD ostensibly as an investigative reporter. Um, it was a bit of a bait and switch. And not all honesty, I was very, very unhappy in the metro section or what was left of it. They yeah. ended up basically Cutting gutting it. it. But no, the, the way in which law enforcement was covered, having covered it on the West Coast in a place where, honestly, like the NYPD is a pretty shitty department. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Like the standard, the physical standards are awful. Individual cops have terrible training. They basically hire for numbers. They don't hire for quality. Mm. Pound for pound, like, all right. So just objectively in law enforcement, pound for pound, a California highway patrolman or a Fresno County sheriff is worth six NYPD officers just wow. because of what they're trained to do tactically, the amount of money that they earn, the time that they get trained up on, what they are required to do in their day-to-day -day job, the fact that they're, I mean, if you're handling a patrol car in California and you're expected to go on high-speed chases and whatnot, you mm -hmm. have to be able to handle a Ford, I see. Ford Explorer, Ford Interceptor at high speeds, tight turns, pit maneuvers. The cops in New York City can barely hit the target. They might not even know where the safety is on their Glock. What a ringing endorsement. I want to ask a little bit about the Oakland Police Department specifically. As I mentioned, i from Oakland. And one of the things that I remember, I was born in 1986. So I was sort of growing up in Oakland in a lot of the times in the book that you talk about was like really high crime. And I remember like Oakland was, I don't know if it actually was, but it was the murder capital of America at some point in my lifetime or close to it, you know, like, and it was like, it was treated the way that like people talk about Chicago and Detroit right now. And I always believe that to be true. But in reading your book and in reading like so many different um, stories of police officers lying and making stuff up and and saying that there was a crime being committed that wasn't and, and arresting someone who was, you know, asking for help or whatever that looks like. Was it really that bad? Like, was Oakland really a truly crime infested place or was some of it like 
added on. And I'm asking that genuinely because I remember in my mind being sort of scared of Oakland as a kid. And now I'm like, Oakland's so different. It really doesn't feel... I mean, same in some places and same, but has like a different PR spin than it used to. Like Oakland's whole image when I was a kid was like, Oakland is a terrible place and it's violent and it's dirty and it's horrible. And now it's like, Oakland is Brooklyn. And I love Oakland. I just want to say Oakland is the greatest place on earth. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) We love Oakland too. Um, The answer is both. Um, In the 80s and the 90s, Oakland was a very dangerous place. And it was primarily dangerous for lower income African-American and Latino residents. Um, They were the people who experienced the highest rates of gun violence, robberies, rapes, burglaries, other other crimes. They were the people who also experienced the highest um, intensity of environmental racism of ongoing housing discrimination, job discrimination, other forms of systemic racism. This all combined to make Oakland by the 1980s and going into the 90s, yes, a very dangerous place and dangerous for the people who lived there. It was also somewhat dangerous to be a police officer um, during those decades. Um, It's also true that the police department at the time There were some officers, there were some squads, there were some leaders who were genuinely committed to trying to create better community relations. In the 90s, Oakland had an increasing number of police officers who were like born and raised in the city or were African-American or Latino. And like they wanted to make a a different kind of department than what it had historically been. And they ran up against other people in the department who primarily lived in the suburbs and had a more sort of like military notion of like what policing should be, Mm. go in and occupy the streets, command and control, use physical force to like dominate people. Um, So, yeah, it it really was both um, a very dangerous place. And also there was, in fact, like a very biased media regional media narrative that kind of like demonized Oakland. I remember this because I grew up in the North Bay in Sonoma County. And I recall being in, uh, you know, junior high and high school and you would hear about Oakland and it was people talked about it as some like very like dangerous place that you probably didn't want to go to. I went several times when I was a kid and I would go down to the Bay Area and visit San Francisco or Oakland. And I was a, I was a skateboarder and uh, rollerblader and we like we used to come down to the cities and just like hang out and we I loved Oakland at the time but like you know like as a visitor and a white person coming in from the outside it wasn't a dangerous place for me and I kind of I kind of knew that and felt that at the time yeah I think that there's also um you know San Francisco had a lot of problems during the 80s and 90s as well but the thing about the difference between San Francisco and Oakland is San Francisco had and still does have the preponderance of the white collar jobs in the region, right? The media interests like the Chronicle and the Examiner and the, most of the, te- you know, the local public broadcaster are based in San Francisco. San Francisco law firms are very, the white collar firms in San Francisco, especially those big finance firms and law firms have an interest in keeping San Francisco's image shined up. So one way in which they would kind of deflect attention off San Francisco was to play up the problems in Oakland. And San Francisco really, you know, the problems facing Latino and African-American communities in San Francisco were very deep during those periods of time. Um, And I do think that Oakland did, because of the city's, you know, 
predominantly African-American. And as you know, you know, during the crack era, the entire dialogue about super predators and whatnot really fell down on young black youth. That being said, Oakland was an extremely violent place um, in their 80s and 1990s, predominantly in the flatlands. A lot of it was driven by the narcotics trade. We document some of the, um, the players in that era. There's a chapter in our book called Small Wars, taken from a really good um, San Francisco Examiner series by our colleagues, Carla Marinucci and Lance Williams. And it kind of lays out like they spent months on the street just talking to the, the young men involved in this trade and like just showing, hey, look, this is actually what it looks like on these flats. You may not see this up in the hills up above Interstate 580, um, which is kind of the demarcation yeah. line still is between for people who don't aren't familiar yeah. with the Bay Area. Yeah. Like Oakland is weird. There's like uphill and downhill. The hills are where the wealthy people congregate, the, or where wealthy people live, good schools, predominantly nice leafy hillsides. It's very idyllic. And then below 580, it's the flat, that's trending towards the flatlands. That is the flatlands, which are were predominantly black and Latino, increasingly Asian now. Um, there's gentrification in some parts of it too, but those are and still, those were and still are the areas impacted by the majority of like poverty and violence and just a lot of the issues that still plague Oakland to this day. So there's, yeah, I, there are, there were always issues there, but the police department, it's also important to note that like that older culture that Darwin was talking about earlier, that resistance, that kind of hard edge, blunt nosed, you know, jackbooted policing culture, that's an old thing. It's a white thing as well, predominantly white. It goes back to the second world war and beforehand a lot of the families in oakland there's a lot of legacy families mm -hmm. and underneath the surface of the department that stuff is always present there's always this core that pushes up against the people who wanted the department to be something different there are always the people and this is not just oakland it's constant in other departments they say well these are our traditions and this is our you know this is our culture paramilitary culture and we want it to stay like this because that's what worked what they think worked Okay, so let me ask you this then. Is there something inherently wrong or flawed or interesting about the Oakland Police Department that makes it stand out against other police departments to you all? Or is this just where you live and your beat and what you what you work on? Like, I guess is sort of the question. Like, why Oakland is a more succinct. <laughs> yeah, Um we wrote a whole book about how terrible the Oakland Police Department is, but I'm going to tell you the Oakland Police Department is actually one of the most professional and best police departments in the country. No, that's right. Darwin. Um, it's, it's sort of a weird, yeah, it's like a weird whiplash thing to say, but, um, uh, you know, why are you giving away all the chapter titles? <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, the reason I say that is because like, a lot of what we were grappling with in writing this book was, um, well, we want to present Oakland as a case study, right? And like compare it to Los Angeles, Chicago, Baltimore, New Orleans, you know, St. Louis, all these other cities all over, um, even states and rural areas, just like law enforcement in general. This is a case study of law enforcement. Um, but, you know, we kind of had to deal with the fact that like, in some ways, Oakland is an outlier. So... Oakland is an outlier in the sense that like it's been under federal court oversight to reform its police department probably longer than anywhere else. It's also an outlier in the sense that like before it even before the consent decree was imposed in 2003, what was happening in Oakland was probably more efforts by civil society, like civil rights attorneys, activists, groups like 
everybody from like the Panthers to like Brown power groups to like, you know, students and yeah, just all these organizations and people and activists and citizenry putting tons of pressure on the police department to change, creating a police oversight board. Um, one of the first ones in the country, uh, strengthening it, um, over time. And so there was just this huge amount of effort to like, uh, to do two things, to dig up the secrets in the department and make it really transparent and to change it. And I think one the thing about Oakland is we know a lot more about its police department because the curtain's been pulled back in a way that you don't see with a lot of other police agencies, especially smaller ones in like uh, rural areas and suburban areas. Um, but even some of the like other big city police departments, we haven't seen this like revealing of the secrets to the same degree so oakland would on the surface it seems a lot worse but really it's a lot like a lot of other police departments in the country maybe even a little bit better actually i would say that one to add to all that um one of the aspects about the oakland police department being in a major media market does not hurt by the way Mm -hmm. the bay area is a relatively large um, metropolitan area even though it kind of seems outside like the new york and los angeles kind of duopoly of coastal media. But um, one thing that does make Oakland really interesting as someone who grew up in New York has lived in SoCal, Chicago, DC as well, overseas, is that Oakland is a little bit ahead of the rest of the country when it comes to policing Hmm. and law enforcement and the reaction against it. So 1950, right? Let's rewind a bit. That's the the state legislature, California state legislature, holds a series of investigative of hearings, investigative hearings into police abuses of the African American community in the city. First of its kind that we've been able to figure out in the state of California and maybe the country. Um, that comes about because of agitation by a lot of left wing lawyers, some of them tied in with the Communist Party, really kind of showing that the agitation that like very involved, committed, on boots on the ground type activism is not a recent thing in Oakland, but tracks back quite some ways. Then the formation of the Black Panther Party in Oakland in reaction to the Oakland Police Department's um, just entire approach to the African-American community um, was also, you know, went hand in hand with the anti-war radicals of the 1960s. The Bay Area was a, you know, hotbed of protest against uh, not just the war in Vietnam, but the power structure, right, of mm-hmm. the country at the time. Seth uh, Rosenfeld's book, Subversives, is a brilliant, brilliant mm. account of the period. We drew on that quite um, quite heavily. Um, again, another author who fought, I don't know how long his legal battle was for his <laughs> records, but no, no, I mean, he. I think he fought for decades to get some wow. of those FOIA uh, suits answered. And then 1980, Melvin Black is killed by the Oakland Police Department, unarmed yeah. young black teenager running away from the cops. John Burris, who's one of the civil rights attorneys who helped bring the Oakland Police Department under this court agreement instead of the Department of Justice, the absence of the federal and state authorities and helping reform the police department here is something we can talk about down the road. Um, it's, it's really conspicuous. And, you know, this, the agitation over Melvin Black's shooting and Burris's report, who's, you know, a former prosecutor at the time, then turned civil, turned defense attorney, he really kind of lays out that this guy was killed in cold blood and helps provide the impetus for movement that leads to the formation of Oakland's um, police review board. 2009, Oscar Grant's murder on a new, on a train platform. 
yes. New Year's Day by 2009 by a barrier rapid police rapid transit police officer. He's not an OPD officer, but the weeks and months of protest that kick off very, very, very tumultuous protests that I was in the midst of, and it was really a remarkable time. That's an er moment for the Black Lives Matters movement. And a lot of the attention on law enforcement and police misconduct and the killing of an armed young black man did, fo- did end up turning back on the o- Oakland Police Department, who had their own, which had their own litany of police shootings and unjustified brutality and so forth that, you know, was one of the issues which I really kind of cottoned on to when I first started reporting on OPD um, in the late 2000s. So in this sense, the and Black Lives Matter, the formal movement, comes around like three or four years later. So in a way, Oakland is trending ahead of the rest of the country. And you'll see this throughout the narrative of the book in terms of the developments that you see later on in like Ferguson and elsewhere like that. I I was on BART that night, not that train, obviously, but I was New Year's Eve. So we went to sneakers only party in San Francisco. I don't know if you guys, I don't think they still do it, but you'd have to get dressed up and then you had to wear sneakers only. And if you wore heels or like dress shoes, you had to pay more to get in. Anyways, I I just obviously I remember that night so vividly because you wake up the next morning and you hear the story of like something's happened. And, you know, we were parked at West Oakland Bart and just like the craziness of sorry. No, we were parked at the lake Um, anyways. But the craziness of like we could have been like we could have been there, you know, anyways, not to make this about me. But every time I hear his name, I'm always like that being said, I do actually let's take a quick break and then we'll come right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. 
are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. I want to touch on what you brought up, Ali, about the federal oversight being lacking in Oakland and what was going on. Can you speak a little bit to that? Like, is that that is obviously not typical. Um, I you're you're making the big eyes of like I could speak for hours on that. So I'm going to hold you to keep it tight. But I do I would love for you to share like why that is conspicuous to you. What what is that? What does that say? What does that mean? Why would they not be around? That's a very uh, this this story I don't think has really been told. This aspect of the Ryder story really hasn't come out. Um, or is not in the public consciousness. Maybe because it's 20 years ago, but I think because no one really examined this question. Wait, sorry, we should, before I let you go, The Writers is the name of, this is the title of your book, but they are like a group of Oakland police officers who are sort of, they're like a cop gang. They're um, a cop gang. Yeah, cop like gang. we have them here in LA, the sheriff's department, there's gangs down here. And basically they were a bunch of really abusive, harassing, violent, they tortured people, they killed people they arrested people and they were called the writers and so um but like by by the people of oakland like in the people they were harassing would, would call them like the writers and and so the writers would come out at night anyways so that's who you're talking about i just i realized we never did that in a normal interview they'd probably be like tell us what is a writer but here we are we've made it 25 minutes in go ahead <laughs> no that's fine um and the writers so that name was actually given to them they heard the story is urban legend is that they pulled over uh, an African-American man and one cop during pulls him over during the day in West Oakland, gives the man a ticket, writes him up for a violation. And the driver says to him, thank you. He says, the cop's confused. He says, what are you thanking me for? I just wrote you up. He says, no, no, thank you for being so nice. You know, they're not like this. Like, he says, who? He says, well, the day, you know, if I got at night, they're not like, not, they're not like this. That's when the riders come out. Mm. Right. And that's how there's a long term of African-Americans referring to vigilant white vigilantes as night riders mm. in the South and elsewhere in the country. Um, I don't know. We don't know the origin of that term in Oakland, but it's stuck. It. Uh, the police that kind of that story rattled around the locker room in West Oakland. And this group of cops, uh, Clarence Chuck Mabinag, um, Jude Siapno, Frank Vasquez and Matt Hornung, among others. There were many others, but those are the four who were formally accused in court of being the writers, um, engaged in a litany of abuses against West Oakland residents. Um, they framed them up for narcotics possession, pummeled them into submission, uh, kidnapped some people, uh, just brutalized them in. So if, if your listeners have seen the film training day, mm. this was training day, yeah. Northern Plant, California planted drugs and guns, falsified reports, all, all the good stuff that any one cop could be doing at any one time, they were all doing together as a gang of friends and horrible men. That's okay, right. They signed a softball <laughs> even. Yeah. And they would pass around a softball. What a great They signed story. with what their nicknames. And then said the writers on it. That was their 
That was a piece of evidence used against them in a criminal trial. So, so the Department of Justice, back to your bigger question. When the time came around, a young cop named Keith Batt, who was training with the riders um, in the summer of 2000, was horrified at what he saw and just had a you know crisis of conscience and blew the whistle and turned them into the Internal Affairs um, Internal Affairs Division. And these officers were investigated by the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. And when they were being investigated by the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, because the alleged incidents, um, the allegations made involved egregious civil rights abuses, the deputy DA, David Hollister, was cross-designated as a United States attorney, an assistant United States attorney for by the District of Northern California. And there was an ADA as well, um, who later became later rose up to run that office. She did quite well for herself was also cross-designated on that case. And when they were done, when Hollister and his investigator, uh, Bob Connor, were done putting, you know, working back through all Keith Batts' allegations and building up their evidence, um, when they built it up, they came in, they went to the federal offices at um, on Golden Gate Avenue, this tall, imposing building. They went up to the U.S. Attorney's um, floor, to his office, and they sat down across his desk and put the file in front of him. And the U.S. Attorney at the time was Robert Mueller, who later went uh, on to run the FBI and went on to play a major role in one of the investigations of Donald J. Trump. So Mueller took a look through the files, looked through the, through the witnesses' backgrounds and their histories and criminal histories. And some of these guys had rap sheets as long as my arm because they were in the street. That's just who the writers were jacking up. They were jacking up people who were out on the streets, some of whom may or may not have been involved in the narcotics trade. And Mueller looked at this histories, pushed the file back towards Hollister, and said, I wish you the best of luck. And the subtext that Hollister told us was that he didn't want to take a case where he'd be putting the word of four officers, some of whom were highly decorated, up against a group of people with questionable criminal histories. Now, it's worth pointing out that in a similar scandal, the Baltimore uh, Gun Trace Task Force scandal that broke out a couple of years back, many of the people who testified against the police officers in that case, who were convicted and sent to federal prison, did have criminal histories and did have passes as drug dealers and people who dealt in weight, not just, you know, a bindle here, twist a crack there, like these guys did. The case could have been made, but mm -hmm. different times, different mores, so be it. So obviously you guys have done tons of research. And I, oh, I should point out in the book, one of the things that I really love is how much history of Oakland is in this book. Um, you guys sort of, you know, maybe like chapter four, four-ish, you sort of start bringing in the history of Oakland and kind of work through. There were things that I learned, like I had no idea Earl Warren was a DA in Oakland. Uh, I was like, really? We have like, whoa, fancy. And um, like, I didn't know that I knew that Oakland was a racist place, but I didn't know that the Klan was so active in Oakland, you know, like just little things like that, where it's like you grow up in a place and you know a lot about it and you can feel the dynamics, but you don't always know the details. So I really appreciated those like I think three chapters kind of back to back to back that like really went in to took, took us up to the 1990s or early 2000s or so, um, which I think is really cool because I think you do obviously need that to kind of tell this story. But I'm curious to hear what you all say to people who feel that the stories in this book are just examples of bad apples or even that the Oakland Police Department is a bad apple police department amidst 
other fantastic police departments. And that's why they're under federal oversight, right? Like it's a problem department and a problem culture and not anything bigger than that. And maybe they don't, we shouldn't be worried about uh, a bad seed, which is like what we hear all the time. I'm smiling because I'm trying really hard to pretend like this argument is valid, but I'd I'd love to hear your all's pushback or response to that if there is any. Sure. You know, the the claim that or the theory that there are bad apples and that they they make the bunch or the you know the barrel of apples look bad that rest on the on you know for that to be true there would have to be just a what few bad apples right right in oakland uh in 2016 there was a, a week period in which three police chiefs had to resign because they all had horrible skeletons in their closet. Right. Um, and the mayor at the time, Libby Schaff, could not find a person within the Oakland Police Department or even externally in another Bay Area Police Department, a sworn officer. She could not find one to run the Oakland Police Department because so many officers were just damaged goods because their their jacket their files had these kinds of secrets in them um they had they had engaged in some kind of behavior years ago or they had just done something horrible and they were just unfit to be police chief and so she had to appoint her city administrator Sabrina Landreth to become the police chief for a while if you if you look systematically at any police department uh like we did with the Oakland Police Department it quickly becomes clear that it's not a matter of bad apples. It's a, it's a matter of toxic cultures and systemic problems that are deeply ingrained and that are handed down uh, through to the present um, from these, these problems in history. Like, for example, in Oakland, um, the fact that the city would not hire anyone other than a white man to be a police officer up until really about the 1960s early 70s when they started to diversify, um, the fact that the department remained all the way through the 1990s, a place that openly tolerated homophobia and misogyny. It was a very hostile workplace for women. So I just, the, the evidence of like systemic cultural problems and in policing, institutional problems in policing we think it's overwhelming. And the, yeah, the bad apples argument Maybe there are some departments out there that are like, you know, mostly great and very professional and have very few like serious scandals. And then maybe one officer comes along and does something and makes everybody look really bad. Maybe that's the case here or there. Um, If that were the case in Oakland, I don't think the department would have been placed under federal court oversight, you know, 20 years ago and then repeatedly have failed to fulfill that mission with not just like failing to check the boxes on the technical reforms, but like having explosive and egregious scandals of abuse, right. like, you know, multiple officers, sex trafficking, a, you know, 17, 18 year old girl, um, multiple cover officers. up of another officer's, another officer's wife who killed herself allegedly in extremely suspicious circumstances. And then the same officer goes on to kill himself. Yeah. Or, um, or, you know, so officers going out to, you know, police a protest and just unleashing such horrendous, like horrific force on the protesters that they end up almost killing, you know, an Iraq war vet um, and just and then lying about it afterwards, coordinating their lies. So, yeah, the bad apples argument. I mean, people can make it, but I just it 
it really, it kind of stretches, it doesn't line up with the, the reality. And I think that's the reason we tried to write a history and just describe what happened. And, you know, I know some people will read our book and be like, this is kind of tedious. We keep going through a bunch of these like incidents and like, you're just like pouring on the detail and the, you know, there's all these citations. The reason we did that is because we wanted to really show people rather than like tell them, you know, what, what the issue is. Um, This is sort of where we started. And I did say I wanted to circle back to this. And I will preface this by saying um, in the last few years, I have done a lot of reading and we've had a lot of people on the show who are police and prison abolitionists from Miriam Kaba to Derricka Purnell. Uh, Last year, we read Prison by Any Other Name by Victoria Law and Maya Shenwar. And so, you know, people who listen to the show will be familiar with a lot of sort of those abolitionist talking points that have really been transformational in how I think about the police and especially how I think about the idea of reform. And so I want to ask you both, can this be reformed in a way that is actually a reformation or a way that would change in a goal to do better as opposed to a reform that just is bullshit that has to be, I think what Miriam Kaba told me was like, we want reforms that we don't have to then reform again, right? Like if the reforms are working towards a goal of doing better by the communities, then those reforms like defund the police is technically a reform, right? Like it's not a full abolition, but it is a reform. Anyways, so that being said, do you see a road towards reforming the Oakland Police Department specifically or police departments generally as two people who cover the police. You should know the police better than anyone else, right? So what do you think? We're we're not, yeah, we don't take a position on these debates around what should be done um, to the police. I guess what could be done. Is it possible? Yeah, yeah. Or can you not take a stand on that either? (laughs) Uh, I mean, we, we could, but, but the thing is, we we just don't feel comfortable doing it because first off, who are we? Like, you know, there's a bunch of there are a lot of leaders out there with a lot of great ideas and a lot of initiative who are like are going to propose all kinds of like transformative stuff. Um, and, and we're just we're just we're two investigative journalists. And so the way we view our role is we take a really hard look at society. We dig for documents. We talk to sources and we tell we, we're trying to tell people what we're seeing. And so this this might be not quite the answer to your question. But like what we are, what we did see in Oakland, having spent, you know, a decade plus, you know, looking really long and hard at the police department, at the city, the context that the police operate in. What we what we do see is a department that has changed a lot. Um, it did not change because like one day the cops woke up and were like, you know, it'd be really great if we had better relations with the community and we like killed fewer people and we like locked fewer people in prison. That would just be great. You know, no, the, the police did not do that. Maybe some some people in the department did kind of feel that way. A lot of them didn't. The leadership, the political leadership of the city did not have an epiphany one day that like, you know, reform or transformation is the right thing to do. Um, two years ago, the political leadership of Oakland, the city council, they voted to defund the police budget by half, by $150 million in, in theory. To, you know, a year later, when they actually got to making the budget vote, they increased the police budget. So awesome. the political leadership in Oakland, like a lot of cities in this country, the police departments there, they have never on their own said, like, 
we're going to transform policing. We're going to make it better. The way that the, the way that the Oakland Police Department got better. And let me give you one example of what I mean by got better. It used to be that like well over a dozen people were killed every year by the Oakland Police Department, usually in an office, quote unquote, officer involved shooting. Right. Like where an officer is like chasing someone and shoots them and kills them. And usually one or two or three of those people were totally unarmed and the and the, the circumstances were extremely controversial. <clears throat> and that was a huge problem uh, because those people were suspected of committing crimes. Maybe they were fleeing police. Maybe some of them were, maybe some of them weren't, but they were killed and they weren't given a fair trial. They weren't given, you know, right. it's a, a huge problem. And they're mostly people of color. Um, now the Oakland police department usually only kills one or two people a year. Now killing anyone law enforcement is a big deal, but it's, that's a lot better than killing like, you know, 14, 15 people in a year. And the reason that happened is because of reforms that the department implemented. The only reason the department implemented those reforms is because they were forced to by the federal court overseers, by civil rights attorneys, by others who, and, and by social movements who put huge amounts of pressure on the police department so the only reason things changed is because externally civil society said, we want to transform policing. We want to change it. Now, some of the people putting up that pressure on the department are abolitionists who are saying defund the department. Some of them are like liberal reformers who are like, we just need a better police department that's more responsive, you know, that has better technology. But altogether, what we saw, what we're seeing when we look back on the history of policing in Oakland and how it's changed over time that's what we saw and that's what works and that's how things do get better. Now is better good enough? Are we at a point where, you know, um, institutional racism and <clears throat> policing is gone? No, we are not. And so like, how could, can we ever get to that point? How do we get there? That's not something that Ali and I really, you know, I don't know that we have a, an answer for that. Yeah. I think that for me, our role really is to show the shape of the current problem, right? And to use Oakland as a way to focus in, show the proofs, show the mechanisms, show the granular detail of how things have gotten to the point that they've gotten to, what sort of rev uh, remedies have been tried, how there's been kind of this two step, one step forward, two steps backward pattern throughout history. There were reform attempts in the 70s. There were serious changes to the police department's um, efforts to recruit locally in the 80s and 1990s. Um, there were points in time when the police were when the Oakland Police Department did have success in establishing trust with the community and were able to solve more crimes and help some of these people pushing for accountability and for police for their tax dollars to actually bring them some public safety. Because let's be honest, some of the people pushing for police reform too are the victims of are the relatives of somebody who was murdered mm -hmm. five, 10, 15 years ago, and that case is cold, that case is unsolved. And that's a very real aspect of all this. The bigger issue is the shape of the institution, and mm -hmm. the institution as it is may not be reformable, the old, may not be savable, but what will work, what has worked to a degree, what's gotten us to a better place is just relentless outside pressure and involvement and engagement from people in the community. This is not the sort of activism that or engagement that you can have on a day-to-day, -day, on a one-day, one-day-on, one-day-off basis, one month on, six months off. Basis. It's not a matter of going to one protest or posting a hashtag on social media. The changes that we've seen in Oakland come from people who are invested in this city and their community for weeks, years, 
decades. You know, these are people who are just there and present and paying attention to what's happening in their community. Insofar as what can be done, this is not a prescript, proscriptive book. Um, we're not theorists. We're not prison abolitionists. We're not that sort of thinker. I know that we might get some flack from that. It's not our role. You know, we're not trying to be something that we're not. Okay, let me ask you, this is sort of, let me just ask you guys what you think. Ali, I know you said that you're half Turkish, but you're both white presenting humans. And I'm wondering, and you're both identify as male. And so I'm wondering, what do you think that you all are able to tell in this story or have access to that other reporters might not? And what do you think you guys miss out on as, as white men? That's a great question. We didn't set out to write a book about what it's like to be brutalized by the police. Um, Or we didn't set out to write a book about social movements against police violence, against institutional racism, although we do discuss those things in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, what What we wrote is a story of a police department. And I actually do think that being white men college educated, um, professional reporters. Um, I, I do think it provided us with a bit of like weaponry or armor, if you will, to like get inside the department and access Mm -hmm. some of its secrets that perhaps are inaccessible to other individuals because of their backgrounds and identities. Um, so I think we're trying to like, in a way, like, come at this and use, you know, our standpoint, our perspective to, again, provide information and what other people do with it, like how they take it and maybe use it um, to build a campaign or to advance a particular theory of social change or or anything like that. Um, We hope that they find it really useful. But yeah, in a way, like some of what we did is also limited by the fact of like, who we are and like our perspective and where we're coming from in terms of like the issue of, of policing. Our book is, you know, it is and isn't a lot of it. it, There's a lot of things that it isn't and that it can't do. And I do really want people to know like that, you know, there are those limitations um, built into it. But if, if people really want to like open up a can of worms of like the police department, pull back the curtain on its secrets, like, it's there. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, one thing that we've always tried to do, and you know, this is a little bit of media critique, um, that does, can, you can take it or leave it, but we've tried to throughout our careers, we've tried to make ourselves as transparent as possible. Um, and what that means is we're not the story. We try and let our works, if you read our work, you know, you hear us talk on the radio or you hear us speak in the individual. Yeah, we have personalities of our own. We have our own dynamic. Like Darwin and I have our own interpersonal dynamic that we probably can't describe it. Your listeners could or people who know us could or observed us down the years. But in terms of our actual product, we're not there. We're there in the writing of it. We're there in some of the perspective. But we try and let the facts speak as much as possible for readers as as we can. And that's, you know, you can look at the back of the book, the citations are there, they're voluminous. We really tried to bring out as much of the truth, the best available version of the truth as possible. There's, you know, many truths there. Yes, Rashomon is a real thing, that idea of perspective and reality is refracted through the lens of individual experience. It's inevitable that that happens. However, you can try and surround a situation and report around it, find as many perspectives on that situation and 
really cut through it. I mean, I think that there's a case, our second chapter focuses around the beating of a young man, um, death of a young man who's beaten police custody and then dies of his injuries, and it's covered up for a decade, Jerry Amaro. We surrounded that story as much as possible. And it happened through many different perspectives. There were dozens, there were what, a dozen odd people on scene. And in order to try and get the best version of that extremely murky story, which, you know, there's still unanswered questions that we have about it to this day, we got, we really write, write through as many records as possible that we turned up through law, old lawsuits, our Freedom of Information Act lawsuit our, itself, our own reporting, ipso post facto interviews with people who were there to get an idea of what happened. And that really is the sort of work journalism at its best can do, history at its best can do, when you really try and get at the ultimate truth of a situation and show your, and show your work as much as possible. That's really what we tried to get at. One more, one more thing on this question. Yeah. If, you know, listeners want to learn more about policing in America, yeah, please read our book, but like, you're, it's only going to take you so far. Um, you mentioned Derricka Purnell at the beginning of this. Um, and yeah, like that, you know, that's an amazing, her, her book is amazing. It's a, you know, super critical take. People need to read that. Um, a book I read, you know, while we were writing this was um, Elizabeth Hinton's mm, American Fire. Well, I read that. Oh. Fantastic book. But um, I think an even more important book is The the War on Poverty to the War on Crime. Mm. Um, I just, the way that the, I, and I say this to say that like, a lot of the books that people need to read to understand policing and the problems of like racial inequality in America are written by women and people of color. And so, you know, I just read, read widely and, and read as, as diverse a text as you can. I hope ours is sprinkled in there somewhere. And um, I think people will learn a lot. Before we get out of here, I have, so you sort of stole one of my questions, which is like, what books would you recommend to folks? And so you guys, you have an intense notes bibliography section so for folks who are reading the book like there's pages and pages of sources and you just mentioned some so we'll kind of skip over that one but this is a question that I ask everybody and it is deeply important to me and you have to answer which is when you write where are you how are you writing snacks and beverages don't leave that out rituals candles set the scene for me I know we're running out of time so you have to do it kind of fast but we have to know how you write each of you so I spent a lot of, well, for this book, I spent a lot of it working in the pandemic, uh, first wave of the pandemic in my office in New York. Um, basically, I would ride down to my office and off Union Square and set up, stand my desk up, um, set a little music up, listen to the, a little bit of a feed, have my notebook out in front of me, go through what I had written the day before, um, I had kind of this target to hit 600 words when we were 600 words a day out minimum when we were going through the writing phase. It's not the research phase, um, but there'd be a pile of documents probably behind my notebook right over there. There'd be a stack of the books that I was reading through, um, what, like Sh City of Courts, Shadow of the Panther, Golden Gulag, a bunch of these other books that mm -hmm. we used. Um, no There There, American Babylon. They'd be piled up around me. Coffee, probably drink probably make uh, four to five cups of that a day. Black, down. cream, sugar. Black, black like my soul. Um, okay. No, seriously, like it, it was, but then, you know, I'd, I'd go out, I'd make my own lunch. I'd come in and out of the day. I'd go out, take some walks, but I would try and keep on a nine to five and just have a really steady rhythm. Um, and that would also pertain to the reading as well too. You know, there would just be a way in which you'd have kind of your structure set up. We did set up a really solid outline 
for ourselves and we would trade notes on that and another thing it's a collaborative process darwin and i have been writing so long that we honestly don't know each other's process anymore it just happens <laughs> and we kind of go over one over the other it's it's it really is second nature um it comes from reporting together for years and years and years it's not typical i think um and it makes in a sense this endeavor a little bit less lonely mm. so that's my that's my view on it okay darwin yeah um you know, a lot of evenings, a lot of weekends, sometimes I would take a week off of work to to plug away at this thing over time. Um, my, yeah, you know, writing process. Um, I had a giant kitchen table at the time as my desk. So it was just this massive table, you know, documents spread everywhere for when I need them. Um, just my little laptop computer. And um, yeah, just like, you know, helped Ali write a huge portion of this book while living in the theater apartments in Oakland on 38th Avenue. Shout out to the theater apartments building. Um, people from Oakland will know where that's at. What about snacks and beverages, Darwin? Oh, I don't know. I'm not good at eating and drinking. Oh, oh my gosh. What? <laughs> I can testify to that. What a crazy sentence. You can never heard anything like that. Okay. He gets really, really, really into it. No, but like it was, um, it was, it was interesting. It was like watching. I, I didn't really reflect that much over the years on our like our process. People would always mm -hmm. ask us like, "Who wrote this sentence? Who wrote that sentence? I can't tell who wrote it." And it's because that's the pattern. You would write through things. We talk about it. There'd be a con we'd be in constant communication with each other about the process. Right. And okay, well, this doesn't work. Okay, where does it work? Mm. Leave this section undone for now. We'll come back to this. We need this. We need that. It's just. It's really iterative. And, um, you know, any of your listeners who've worked in a collaborative setting, either in a research setting or a journalism setting, might recall this. It's um, like a fragment of a newsroom. But for a lot of our career, like when we were doing our reporting, you know, we would edit each other before our editors got to it. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of editing, what are what's the word that each of you can never spell correctly on the first try? I mean, lots of words, I think. Um, <laughs> I have a lot. I'm a terrible speller, which is where the question came uh, from. Camaraderie. I can't remember Ooh, whether it's a, yeah, camaraderie. Second, second vowel is an A or an E. It always confuses me in the back. Camer, camaraderie. Yeah. But one thing, one actually thing about spelling and pronunciation, one way that you can distinguish a Californian from an East Coaster is by pronouncing the word C-A-U-G-H-T. Pronounce it. Oh, cot. Okay. Or quat. Now, now pronounce C-O-T. Caught. Bing. You said the same thing. Yeah, they're the same. They're they're homonyms <laughs> or whatever. No, listen to it again. You'll hear it. Caught and caught. There you go. Yeah. That in California, you say those words the same. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a few other words like that. Yeah, like yeah, 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 ought, sure. ought and so, I don't know. Anyways. Um orange. Or orange. Orange. It's definitely an orange. Also, East Coasters say some or Philadelphians say bagel weird. That's bagel? not a real place. Philadelphia is not a real place. Oh, and I'll, they say and I'll it go, weird. I'll go down on I'll go down swinging <laughs> on that. Let's go. Mess. Great, I'm happy with that. Um, Darwin, did you have a word, or is there also camaraderie? I said awkward. Oh, awkward is so hard for me too. Okay, here's yeah, my last tricky. question for each of you: um, If you could have one person, dead or alive, read the writers come out at night, who would you want it to be? Well, I, so Mike Davis did read the book. Um, before he passed and, uh, you know, we mentioned him already. He's, and he, he gave it a blurb and, um, we just have mad respect for him. 
Uh, Wish he was still here with us. Um, Deceased, but who hasn't read it? um, I got one. There's a man named Gwyn Pearson, um, who was a Tuskegee Airman and an open police officer um, in the 19, from the 19, late 40s or early 50s through, I want to say, say the 70s. He was, then he got a doctorate in sociology and then became a professor of criminology at, I believe, Howard University was his last stop until he died of a heart attack in the early 1990s. He wrote a brilliant doctoral thesis on police culture, focusing on his experiences in the open police department. We used his dissertation as some of our source material, and it was just, it was eye-popping. You know, he details basically this hard right, John Bircher society type, um, hardcore to the police department, and outlines some really grim episodes in there, and efforts to try and change the police culture, the the ways in which the reformist chief was being beat back by the police union. I mean, it read like, Mm -hmm. uh, it read almost like some of the articles that we wrote ourselves, and... um, you know, I, while reading this stuff through, I was just kept thinking to myself, God, I wish he was around. I wish mm. I had the chance to interview him. I wish I had half an hour with this guy. You know, yeah. so I wish that, that Dr. Gwen Pearson was around to read it. Definitely, definitely. What, another, a couple other people, just real quick, uh, Robert Truehaft and Decca Mitford. They were like, uh, Truehaft was this radical civil rights attorney and, and Decca Mitford was, you know, one of the Mitford sisters and this like a renowned author and social critic. Mm. And they were living in Oakland in the, um, in the forties and the fifties. And they were, they were just like allies to a lot of communities that were taking a lot of heat from the Oakland police department. And they, they caused a lot of trouble for law enforcement by trying to hold them accountable back in the day. It'd just be really interesting if they were, you know, s- somehow able to yeah. read this. I love those answers. Thank you guys both so much. I know we went a little long, but I had so many. I, there's so many things on my list that we didn't even get to talk about. But I'm so grateful for your time and for you writing this book about my hometown, um, a place that I love and also hate in some ways because of a lot of the things that are detailed in your book, right? Um, and the book is out now for folks who are listening. You can get it wherever you get your books. It's called The Writers Come Out at Night. Darwin, Ali, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Ollie Winston and Darwin Bond Graham for joining us. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Debbie Norfless for helping make this conversation possible. Remember, our January book club selection is The Meaning of Mariah Carey, written by Mariah Carey with Michaela Angela Davis. We will discuss the book with Chelsea Devontes on Wednesday, January 25th. If you love this show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and our website, the Today's episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tegirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>